You have joined us for Making a Mark, Making Places. I'm Louise Puck. And I'm Anna Danielson. We are talking today with Irina Chikurishvili, who is a dancer, choreographer, mother, wife, and theater director. She is co-founder of and choreographer and associate director of Synetic Theater in Arlington, Virginia. So you were telling us that you're originally from Georgia in the USSR, which of course doesn't exist anymore, so now from the Republic of Georgia. Uh, And you were telling us a little bit about how your career and your life were going in the years before you came to the U.S. in 1995. Well, I'm graduated from Tbilisi State Ballet School. And um, it's a ballet school, so you graduate as a a ballet artist. And um, I find out that I don't want to be any more ballet artist. I don't want to... I knew that uh, from me, prima ballerinas won't be there, so... Either I have to be 20th swan in the row or I have to preside myself something. And I really loved to dance and um, dance, move, express the stories. And uh, for me, it was to close the door to be a Giselle or Swan or Carmen. So I decided to go to pantomime theater because uh, from the childhood I loved pantomime. I saw so many productions of the pantomime theater. In Georgia we have state pantomime theater where they are not showing like a white mask and, um, you know, white gloves and doing the wall. They were telling the stories and they are without words but they are so dramatical, so touchable. And I remember that and it was more closer to me than anything else. So I auditioned for the theater, and the director really loved me, and um, he uh, actually announced that a star came in my theater. So, um, (laughs) and actually that's where I met my husband, too. He was from Pantomime Theater. That's basically my acting career, that's how it started. And how how old were you at that point? um, 18. So I was 18, I mean I was 17 and turned 18, and um, Basically, as soon as I got in the theater, that's when Soviet Union collapsed and uh, starting everything falling apart. And um, like no light, no gas. It's so scary actually one time, like you have no light for two hours and you're like, okay. And then you're used to it. It's become systematically, light will be disappeared for two hours. And then for one day, then you are used to it for one day. And actually, then it's going to be for a week, and you're used to it for a week, and light going to come for two hours only uh, during the week, and you're used to it that. So you're starting to <clears throat> live <clears throat> without gas, like a stone age, basically. You have these uh, buildings and, um, you know, cold buildings because uh, temperature outside and inside is the same, and um, nothing else, like no light, no gas, nothing. Everything stopped. People is um, basically without jobs, everybody running with guns, everybody is um, hungry, so that's why so many robberies, so many gangs, and uh, it's a scary time. And how how long did that go on for? Well, luckily my um, parents were in America, so I had a chance to escape that mess, but I was there for five years, and um, my husband had opportunity to also escape to Germany and my brother escaped to Moscow. 
<clears throat> it's uh, me and my son who left between um, stones, basically. And you uh, were you were in a difficult situation, and you were on your own, and you were nineteen yes. or twenty. Uh, in this time, when I got my um, son, uh, I was twenty. I mean, I was eighteen when I got married, by the way. And uh, <laughs> it was uh, yeah, somewhere it was uh, twenty, twenty one, twenty two, and uh, twenty three when I came here. So basically, five years from eighteen, I am. I've been in the in this situation. I mean, it was not starting like a sharp down. It was gradually going down. Mm-hmm. So you're used to it. Mm-hmm. That's what's scary part about it, that you realize that human becomes too used to it, everything. You see that bodies on the street. First time is shocking, but then you're used to it. So many stories every day, somebody killed, and you're used to it. And that's a scary because so one time I remember I was passing on the street and there was dead body in front of me and there was no car for, because the car had no gas from the um, from the hospital to pick up this body right dead body and the people was you know it was so many people who were in the farmers market that's only what was working farmers market so I was went there to buy uh, milk and I saw this dead body and then you know step over it because that's only way was to pass this dead body and I thought to myself oh my god Ira you just stepped over the dead body and you felt nothing it's your heart completely dead. That's what I thought to myself. And it's not. But you are used to it. You have no emotions anymore to see like a somebody's dead because so many being it's like your own people died. Like a, your friends, neighbors, you know. It's um, relatives. Um, you know, in front of my um, house, you see a cemetery and it's... Um, Far away, before I, when I got married, it was like a far away, you could see just far away, like on the mountain, you see a little bit of like cemetery. And then slowly the cemetery is coming to you and you see it's like a whole mountain already covered with cemetery. And when you go to cemetery, it's like all, all young boys, like uh, 18, 17, 20, 25. It's all young generation buried in this <clears throat> cemetery at that time. It was scary part, and uh, I was so scared for my my son. I was happy that my husband was in Germany, that he's not with this mess. Otherwise, he would be run also with the gun, uh, or be, you know, under drugs with them. Right. But um, I was uh, really scared about my son, and I really wanted to get out from there as soon as possible and forget about acting career at that time. I was not thinking about anything just to be out of that situation so um, in the 1995 I finally got visa and that's how I came here me and my husband we came together with my son my son was like four years old and um, here's it so you came to the US uh, as you were saying uh, to be to teach gymnastics in camps and different locations and very quickly that that was not enough for you and you were feeling stifled and and needed more of course and so you and your husband Pata um, started uh, performing in street festivals and summer camps and maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you and Pata started your first theater company in the US in about 1998 Um, maybe a little bit about that and maybe one of your one of your productions Yes, we um, 
we came in 95 and uh, I had work visa and um, I was involved, invited as a um, gymnast choreographer and in the gym, it was called Olympic gym. But um, tell the truth, uh, in two years, I mean, as I was teaching there, it was not enough for me and for my husband, of course, we were artists more than teachers. And um, we created a program for two of us. And um, basically that's how we started. We were starting from everywhere on the streets, on in restaurants, uh, we were in, you know, performing like in the some um, children's parties, I don't know, everywhere. And this uh, program we called Magical Balloon in uh, 98. We met one guy who is also was from Moscow and I mean, all, not also, but who was from Moscow. Uh, his name was Malay Babel. And the three of us, we opened a theater. It's uh, called Stanislavski Theater at that time. Um, basically, it was a Pata era movement plus drama, uh, which is uh, Andre was from drama background, theater, you know, he was from drama background. So, and we from movement background, that's what collaboration happened between us and um, we starting to do shows, we starting with, let's put this aside. Uh, first show what we created was uh, Little Tragedy. Uh, that's story based on Pushkin. Uh, really, it's uh, basically through three stories. There was word and movement. And right away, the show got so much uh, demand, like we were in two weeks, sold. I mean, sold out in advance for two weeks. I mean, it was a great time, by the way. That time, people was going to theaters. Right now, people, it's kind of more become more TV people and digital sitting on the cell phones most of the time. But that time, people loved art. And um, we were like sold out two weeks uh, in advance. And uh, I got Helen Hayes a nomination for choreography. And that's how it started. It was huge success. We didn't believe that you know, first show, it's uh, it's immediately we got Helen Hayes award. That, that and that was that was uh, late nineties, early two thousand. Yeah, it was yeah. ninety eight, ninety nine, basically. So, um, and that was my first success, basically, when we start um, the show. In a few years after um, working with Stanislavski Theater, we decided to go you know, separate way because we were getting nomination mostly for movement and uh, we had our artistic vision and uh, Andre has had his artistic vision and um, basically we split and that's when became Cinetic Theater. So first our show, it was Hamlet and um, that was Shakespeare without words. It was huge, like before either like uh, we opened the show, it was already Casper everywhere. Like, uh, oh my God, who decided to do Hamlet without words? Shakespeare without words is like a Bible without words. How you can take Shakespeare language and create it and call uh, Shakespeare? What can you describe to us what a Shakespeare without words uh, means and and describe the show and and what's what is the experience of seeing that show, how it, how is it yeah. different from seeing from seeing 
another type of theater performance or, or a ballet? How is it different? Okay, I mean, um, specifically Hamlet. I love the show because it's so minimalistic. It's a black box and stretchers. And yet, we are telling the show, we are telling the story of the Shakespeare. It's mostly archetypal characters of the Gertrude, Hamlet, Claudius, and um, Laertes, all main characters, and everything else, it's atmosphere. So, for example, the it starts with dance, simple dance, which is describes what kind of kingdom of this, you know, what's going on. So Gertrude's getting married on the Claudius, and how people, it's all gossips, all cockroaches, all rattans, something like a, to describe this atmosphere in this kingdom, you know. So that kind of dance I created around that atmosphere, around the wedding between Claudius and Gertrude. You know, so uh, then it's like a scene where it's uh, Ophelia's drowning. In the Shakespeare, usually they describe that Ophelia is drowned, so it's a message, right? Which is Gertrude's brings. In this case, we show how Ophelia drowns, and it's a beautiful scene. It's a full of um, symbols and um, melancholy and um, and beauty. And it's touching people, and it's so visually beautiful and touchable, emotional. So people crying there, and as, as uh, in the straight shows, it's like a message: Ophelia's dead. That's it. So people don't feel it for this moment much, you know. And um, and there is stretchers, which is creates all atmosphere around this kingdom. So sometimes it's like a boat, sometimes it's a doors, which is like a, everything happens behind the door. So you can see that, you know, where is Polonius staying and listening behind the doors, what's happening in the Gertrude's uh, room, for example, and then he being killed by Hamlet, right? So doors also create this castle atmosphere or, or stretchers, or they creating different environment. So, and everything is uh, in the simple black, pants and black short so and yet I mean of course main characters they are a little bit like Ophelia is in the special dress and Gertrude in the dress but everything else is like you know that kind of normal like pants black short that's either Hamlet like that you know and yet we are creating this atmosphere exactly what's happened in this kingdom so whole uh, you don't like as a audience member Maybe you don't hear the war, but you definitely hear the war. You know what I mean? Like, you you are seeing, and you are participate, and you understand everything what's happened on the stage, and you feel it. Maybe you don't hear the war, but you see, and you feel it, and you understand still conversation between the characters. That sounds very, very powerful. I can yeah. just imagine being there in the audience and the crowd and getting those vibes you're explaining. Yeah. It's very powerful. Yeah. And that I've, I, having seen a, a show and hearing you and Pata talk about it, it seems like the use of transformation, both for the the actors and for the props and for the set, that's that's something that you use a lot, very effectively. Of, yeah. of everything is always more than one thing and more than one person and it and it but that's that's of taken course, from people, the real world <laughs> mm -hmm. people is creating atmosphere so it doesn't matter uh, who are they they're gonna stay there they're gonna bring the atmosphere right now we are doing hunchback Notre Dame and um, we have gargoyles and they are coming in life so they're creating atmosphere of the Notre Dame 
We have been speaking with Irina Chikurishvili, co-founder of Synetic Theater in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, this is James Whitty, director of the Institute for Immigration Research at George Mason University. At the IIR, we believe that conversations on immigration should be based on factual and unbiased evidence resulting in a productive understanding of our communities. If you believe accurate information is important to educating the public, please like us on iTunes or leave us a comment. This truly helps others to learn about us. Please also consider supporting us by going to the Give button at iir.gmu.edu. Thanks for choosing to be a part of this important conversation on immigrants and immigration. And now just to put things a little in perspective, the American Community Survey tells us that there is an estimated number of 2,942 immigrants working as visual artists like Fabiola in the D.C. metro area. And there is an estimated number of 188 immigrant artists working as dancers and choreographers like Irina in the D.C. metro area. Now we turn to Fabiola Jurkison. Thank you so much for joining us today, Fabiola. It's my pleasure to be here. Fabiola is from Mexico. She's a visual sound and installation artist as well as wife, mother and activist. It was after moving to the U.S. that you realized you could go back to school to study art and make that a priority in your life. How long have you craved that creativity and place for discovery? Um, I think always. I mean, I think that um, since I was a child, art was the way I will handle stress. It was a, pace, a space for thinking. I think when you look, when you go to a museum or you go to to see a performance, is it opens a parenthesis in your head where you're seeing someone else's perspective. And that always was very nourishing to me. I realized that I could study in the United States and there's other elements of getting a scholarship and everything. So I was very happy that I was able to take that um, decision and do it. It took some courage because um, it definitely is not the most um, linear kind of career that you can have. Right. Um, and I have right. a background in business, so that is always something I'm grateful to have. But. Um, i had to leave one world and learn to inhabit a, a different one. I see. I see. So as a child, did you you say it, it gave up some space and, and room for creative thinking? Did you have in mind that it was this type of art that you would produce? Or uh, was it just having that freedom to think independently that inspired you? You know, I was raised by two very environmentally minded human beings. Both of my parents are chemical engineers. So they see the world very formulaic. And um, so for me, there was something about art that wasn't a formula and um, that was this beginning and pausing and going and going up and down and having color and not color. And so it, you know, it, there's so many perspectives when you go and look at art. There's not one way of looking at an object, not one way of looking at a face or a body. And for me, that multiplicity Um, I was an incredible window to possibility. It felt that it was a much uh, a place where I belong more than in a more structured uh, world. So Fabiola, I know that one of your sort of primary products, if we can call it that, as an artist, um, are your bird cages, and um, it would be great if you could. Uh, 
tell us uh, what questions you were thinking about when you created those pieces and as well what techniques do you use to produce those pieces? Um, yes, I think, you know, um, the bird cages are a form of a very basic woven structure. So um, when I consider going back to school, I evaluated different schools and I ended up going to the Art Institute of Chicago and um, the Art Institute has a wonderful fibers department and the department just, ex everybody's exploring everything. I mean, you know, you're in fibers and you're doing video and you're doing performance and you're doing audio and you are weaving and using those ancient techniques. Um, and it also, you know, um, for me as a, as a woman, I try to make things that I can carry. That is my basic sense. If, uh, you know, the notion of an object maker or a sculptor uh, making, you know, bronze, well, as beautiful as that is um, for uh, someone of my size, uh, which is not very big, um, I couldn't do that kind of practice. So right. um, it also speaks about what kind of craft and, and practices of art has been done by women you know, all through humankind. So for me, that connection to fibers also spoke to my connection to Mexico, the south part of Mexico where my father is from. And I will go every year to visit his family, uh, my cousins, and, you know, seeing that on the streets and the markets everywhere. So it, it kind of connected that to my past and how I really understood that visually. Um, but also specifically cages, you know, there are small houses. Uh, where we put birds and we separate birds from nature. And, you know, my practice is very uh, environmentally conscious. And I, I, when, I, when I was thinking of making more things, uh, I, w I didn't really want to just make one more object. Uh, I think it needed to say something else. And um, so lately, the, the cages I've been working on, I've been incorporating a color, um, specifically because I am from Mexico. We just went through an election, and, and, and regardless of who you voted for or what the election was about, there is a sense of separation from us and from the world, and what is our stand, and how are we going to do that? And, you know, I've, um, I feel very American and very Mexican. I don't have a right. conflict about that. You know, I never did, and I okay. never have. And so for me, um, making cages that may have two chambers that portray, you know, the colors that our flags don't share, which is the the blue uh, and the and the green. Um, we share the white, we share the red. Uh, so I think it really just speaks about why what and the things we're putting attention to. I don't think there's a sense of separation. We're just highlighting the things that makes us dissimilar instead of the things that makes us similar. So, uh, you know, it's how do you make art that makes, poses interesting questions, and it's not necessarily gonna leave the, the viewer with, well, it's very clearly stated. We are in a process of figuring this out. How are we sure. gonna be neighbors again? And how do we speak to each other? And um, and when we're posing those questions, hopefully we can answer those in a way that um, um, makes us maybe have a relationship at a different different point in our uh, growth process of, as countries. Um, but they seem very much like a house, and a house is, has all this in it, right? We Our houses have conflict, have love, have growing pains, have questioning. Um, there are those spaces that allow us to do that. And when I started doing my cages, I really didn't think that it was going to become the thing. 
Right. And now they are the thing for me. I don't know. I I search for them everywhere. Um, people know that about me. Um, and um, but again, I don't see them as a place you put a bird to caged in. I think of them as spaces of thought. And that when we create a particular kind of thought process, it can be caging. It can make us feel that we are putting something or someone on a side and we are inside. And that is a cage, right. uh, regardless of how we want to visualize it, because we are not free to exchange our ideas, mm -hmm. our thoughts. We are creating a caging device. The walls. Exactly. And in, and, and in that sense, it's very, very important for us to be mindful that it really doesn't have to be physical, that this, this um, uh, boundaries we're creating are mental. They really are not physical. And as much as they may exist eventually in the future physically, or they, they do today, um, that is not the reason we can't work together. Um, Fabiola, so where do you store your cages and, and where do you do your work? Does that require a special s space? Because it sounds like they could be taking up some room. And as well, I'm interested to know the, um, where do you exhibit them and, and what audiences are you kind of uh, aiming them towards? Or is it more like a broad audience? Or do you have any thoughts on that? Um, so, I mean, I think storage is a, it's a big topic for artists in general. Um, I, I've been very lucky that I, I have been successful in selling a lot of what I make. So I don't necessarily have a lot of, of storage in the series that I've done before the cages. Some of the ones that have, like one of the, the Homeland Security Advisory System is five cages. So that's a lot to store. Um, again, I can carry them so it's easy. But I now have a studio in this old commercial building um, and I'm hoping I'm going to have that space for a couple of years to come um, and like most artists you know we take advantage of spaces that are in flux in between worlds and this building sure. is a very good example of that where the developer is eventually going to demolish the, the building and no business wants to rent long term there um, and you know artists do so now we have I share the space with other another two artists and um, and we have a small gallery and there's a small space for, for storage there. But a lot of people that acquire my work uh, is very much for the um, visual value. I mean, they're, okay. they're visually very appealing, um, I think. But, um, but more and more, you know, the, the proposals I'm making and the, I've had the opportunity to exhibit in most uh, galleries in the Washington, D.C. area. We just finished a group show in Flashpoint, which is a great little space. Uh, for artists in the DC area, um, um, I have two other shows in the uh, coming up in the summer, um, and and where are they at? So they're um, Ro Black um, Rock Art Center um, in Maryland and Brent uh, the Brentwood Exchange also okay. in Maryland. Oh great! Yeah. Good. So um, and so I think that. Uh, I've been very successful kind of fishing for, for opportunities. Now I'm concentrating more the, the two next proposals that I'm applying for. Uh, um, there are things that have to do more with um, creating this more robust practice of creating elements or uh, I don't know if it's going to become more of a workshop or a downloadable thing but how do we empower more teachers parents that are interested in this kind of notion of cradle to cradle how do we 
start questioning this idea. Um, and it has, this idea is not new by any extent, but I think that it needs to it needs to like simmer down a lot more, like quickly down to to our kids and to our parenting styles and everything because it's not enough to be green. It's not enough to, uh, we just really need to put our power where our money is. So as consumers taking those decisions, so more and more my practice is pushing into that and how can I create projects that are doing that. And you know, for in my experience, uh, is it takes a while for those kinds to show up in your practice. So you first start thinking about them, wishing on them, start acting on them, and then eventually you get grants and you get, uh, the possibility to exercise those opportunities. But my practice is very much in flux. I'm still gonna create objects and, and installations, but I also want this other component of the engagement to be much more purposeful. Thank you, uh, Irina and Fabiola. Thank you for sharing your amazing stories and very inspiring stories. Um, you're both immigrant artists, both from different parts of the world, but you know, strong women, and you're here to create art um, and perform. Uh, you have a lot of messages you want to send to society, and that's a very powerful thing. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us about your biggest accomplishments artistically and in your artistic community. It could be both as an artist, as an immigrant, or as a mother, or combined, whichever way you prefer it. If you want to start, Irina? Well, um, my accomplishment is um, art, what I love, and what I'm giving all myself into this art form, and what I created, this theater, this um, this organization, and we have so many followers. Uh, I have around me people who loves what I love to do, what I uh, inspired them with. I had, uh, I taught so many places, so many universities. I done so many workshops, and we teach and train so many actors. I don't know, like, uh, I cannot tell, give you number. It's uh, more than 1,000. So, and uh, I see so many uh, people taking this art and continues to do. You've had a very big impact on the, in the DC area and in the US in general um, with your art form and thank you so much for that. Um, and how about you, Fabiola? Uh, do you have anything that sort of comes to mind as one of your bigger accomplishments or is it more as a, on a broad scale? Uh, um. Well, for me, I think that I come f to a tradition of objects, um, and and so um, you know, I when you go and have your traditional training of of making sculptures, um, you have the traditional avenues that you could go to, and um, I very soon realized that that was not the place that I will make art. Um, I think that when you're thinking of making an object and putting more things into the world, um, I think my impact is, is allowing for this possibility for anyone that sees my work to think about how we create things and where do they, what's the story that that actual material can tell us. 
And we have been you know, grossly irresponsible about how we create technologies. We create something and you know, we don't have the mechanisms to, for that product or material to be absorbed in a responsible manner. And obviously, uh, we are in trouble because of that. So I think my impact continues to be expanding that conversation. Then I think we need to start having, pulling ourselves down and having the conversation of when I make something, and also as a consumer, when I consume something, I am consuming the whole story of this product. You know, as, as simple as a water bottle. That water bottle has a whole history and its impact because I, I decided to buy it. I am complicit in that process. And um, so we need to teach that to our kids. And well, if we change probably TV a little bit uh, <laughs> towards the uh, right direction and not emphasize how many people killed and uh, like uh, so much politics and uh, less on education, on the art and on the uh, any, um, you know, Discovery Channel, for example, it's a wonderful channel, but it's a so many people don't have that channel, so why don't we force them? Like, are we forced to watching so many bad news and not important news, which is we stress out and having heart attack almost for no reason? Right, right. But I think, Irina, this is the thing. We need to stop. Yeah. We're a society of doers. We're not a society, art, I mean, if you think about poetry, poetry doesn't exist in the run. Mm -hmm. It exists when you actually think, when you take exactly. a moment, when you breathe, when you actually take a moment to reflect. We have to stop our yes. very <laughs> interesting <ca> discussion <laughs> or conversation. I th we could carry on for a while because this is a topic that is of great importance and it's 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 been so fascinating today to learn how art can help us as well rethink some of all these very important Processing. matters yeah. yeah so we want to thank both of you so much for joining us today thank you thank you yeah, yeah thank you and and thank you for making a place and a home for your art in your lives and making it a priority and 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 making it uh making it in the u.s making a place for it in the u.s for yourselves and for us yeah thank you thank you we want to thank our editor abe cardi for his enormous support we could have never done this podcast without your insights and creativity thank you so much abe Hear more episodes and read more about these artists at www.iir.gmu.edu. I am Anna Danielson. And I'm Louise Puck. Thank you for listening to Making a Mark, Making Places.